Just kidding. Hello, 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 and just for good measure, hello! Welcome back to another episode of Undead Airlock, the little horror podcast that could. I am your host, Hannah Selector, and I would like to extend to all of you a sincere thank you for your understanding over the past couple of weeks. Um, almost the past couple of months, I guess. I would not recommend losing two grandparents in the span of less than as many months. Future Hannah here. Yes, this early in the show. Fair warning to the empaths and or sociopaths, it gets a little weepy for the next minute or two, so uh, you may find that either upsetting or annoying. So if you'd like to go ahead and skip all that, you can go ahead and jump to about, oh, two minutes and 13 seconds into the cast. I lost another beloved grandfather at the beginning of April, and life has been kind of a sad mess, I guess. Uh, in many ways, I'm a pretty private person on social media, but, um, I'd like to be a little bit less so, I guess, to connect with you guys at least, and so it just feels right to say a little bit about my Grandpa Bob, who has always been my biggest creative cheerleader, um, particularly in my writing pursuits, and (laughs) who did actually listen to the podcast and enjoyed it and was even encouraging of all my swearing. Um, he was such a huge inspiration to me. He was a talented writer, um voracious reader, super intelligent researcher, just um, my academic role model in every way. The fact that I won't ever get to discuss novel edits with him again, that I won't get to sit across from him at his favorite Wendy's again, and that he won't be at his condo next to my grandmother when I drop by after work is just been a really bitter pill to swallow. I love him so much, and for all the time I got to spend with him, I was one of those lucky grandkids who live 10 minutes away, um, it's never going to feel like enough, and I really miss him. But, uh, anyway, (laughs) you're here for the horror, not for bummer news like that. On a much happier note, I am fresh back in the South after a fun trip up to Michigan for a cousin's 30th birthday. We're all getting older, folks, and some of us might even be getting wiser. So that's something to celebrate, right? The podcast is aging, too. Uh, it's growing up pretty well, I think. I talk a little slower, I might be a tiny bit more entertaining, and this is our 13th episode. In podcast years, Undead Airlock is now a teenager. Yes, I've arbitrarily decided the aging system for podcasts is per episode, which means that some of our favorites are well into their hundreds at this point, maybe two hundreds. Yikes. Appropriately, since the podcast is a slightly older kiddo now, I thought it might be a fun idea to discuss horror of a kind that is appropriate for younger audiences in some ways. Sometimes. On a discretionary basis? Okay, just maybe not okay. Whatever. Let's talk fairy tales, y'all. The scary stories you got told as kids that you can tell your kids. A note from the host, not all children can handle fairy tales. Please exercise caution when reading unabridged fairy tales to your children. Podcast host is not responsible for any trauma or lost parental sleep that may result from telling your kids scary stories or fairy tales at bedtime. So, fairy tales. What are they? Fairy tales, sometimes called wonder tales, magic tales, or marchin tales in other cultures, or uh, rather the German culture, because, you know, that's a German word, make up a genre of fiction that is characterized by short, memorable stories involving magical or otherworldly elements, and they are often built upon a moral or a lesson. Nowadays, 
Fairy tales tend to be discussed as distinct from explicit morality tales like fables and beast fables, even though lots of those stories sit well in both categories. Modernity has also sort of transformed the connotation of the term fairy tale to primarily refer to stories in children's literature, even though, again, this was not always the case. Fairy tales were not always their own separate genre, nor were they expressly targeted toward young audiences. Fairy tales were just understood to be short, orally told stories that dated back to a time when the world retained a sort of old magic. Hence the use of the frequent and familiar beginning, Once Upon a Time. Fairy tales are found throughout history, primarily in oral and literary form. But that's not all. Fairy tales were also adapted into plays, and even served as inspiration to classical composers, such as with Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake or Sleeping Beauty Waltz, or Rimsky-Korsakov's piece Scheherazade. The term fairy tale was first described to these stories by Madame Dolny in the late 17th century. She was a French author and fairy tale writer who's definitely worth a read-up when you have some time. Oh, and, uh, please pardon my French, and I do mean the pronunciation, not the swearing. The oral tradition of the fairy tale came long before the written form. Duh. Tales were told or performed dramatically, rather than written down, and they were passed down from generation to generation. Most of today's fairy tales, or, that is to say, the fairy tales that have survived until today, have come from centuries-old stories that appeared in all sorts of versions in multiple cultures all over the world. Because of this variety and their transmutation across cultures and years, the history of any specific fairy tale can be difficult, if not impossible, to trace completely. And especially because only the literary forms of the much older tales have survived. Still, many of these stories are believed to date back thousands of years, some to the Bronze Age and more than 6,000 years ago. As I said, because of their age, the history of the fairy tale development is kind of blurred. Fairy tales appear now and again in written form throughout literate cultures, like the story of the golden ass in ancient Rome. Future Hannah again. Dead ass, do. I'm sorry. Or the Panchantantra, which is a collection of beast fable stories written in Sanskrit from 3rd century India. Many writers have, subsequent to these oral traditions, written in the form of a fairy tale or attempted to adapt oral fairy tales. Interestingly, King Lear is sometimes considered a literary reimagining of early fairy tales like Water and Salt or Capo Rushes. It's pretty likely that these transcribed ancient fairy tales don't exactly reflect their original source material. How close they've remained to their origins is anyone's guess. But we've got what we've got, and these are what we refer to as the literary fairy tales. Fairy tales that are literature. The literary fairy tales. You guys get this. Right? Right. The Brothers Grimm were among the first to try to preserve the features of oral fairy tales as they were transcribed to written form. However, future Hannah in the edits, I'd just like to take a moment to thank one of our most generous sponsors of the podcast, the word however. Thank you so much. The stories printed under the Grimm name have still been significantly reworked to fit into the written narratives, so the original oral fairy tales are, for all intents and purposes, lost to us. But really, the ancient fairy tale preservation situation isn't as bleak as I just made it sound. And here's why. Literary fairy tales and oral fairy tales freely exchange plots, motives, and elements with one another and with the tales of foreign lands. The stylistic evidence indicates that these and many later written collections reworked oral fairy tales into literary forms. So what does that mean? Even in these written forms, features remain that illustrate that fairy tales have very ancient roots. 
ancient and diverse roots, in fact. Collections of these OG fairy tales are available today, taken from Taoist philosophers in ancient China, parts of ancient India, there are tales from ancient Africa, ancient Rome, ancient Latin American cultures, and many more early civilizations. One of the more notable collections of ancient fairy tales are Aesop's Fables, a collection of morality fables, animal stories, and literary proverbs ascribed to ancient Greek slave and storyteller, you guessed it, Aesop. The literary fairy tales enjoyed a period of notable cultural influence during the 17th century. The spike in popularity was owed mostly to the aristocracy, particularly women, who would adapt literary fairy tales, or sometimes compose original stories, to perform aloud in front of friends, as a sort of parlor game. These writing games did much to preserve the oral tradition of fairy tales, and also provided inspiration for later written ones. Among the tales told during this time were the ones of La Fontaine, collections such as the facetious knights of Straparola, tales and stories of the past with morals, a collection composed by Charles Perrault, the author notable for fixing the forms of Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella as we know them today, and the Neapolitan tales of Giambattista Basile. Although these collections of Straparola, Basile, and Perrault contain some of the oldest known forms of fairy tales, all the writers rewrote the tales for literary effect. Simultaneously, in other countries, like China, fairy tales were also enjoying a return to popular storytelling. For instance, Pu Song Ling included many fairy tales in his collections, and Strange Stories from a Chinese Studio was also written at this time. Now let's bounce back to Europe again. As we touched on a moment ago, there was a particular vogue for telling fairy tales and magic stories among the aristocracy and intellectuals of the 17th and 18th century, and many especially noteworthy stories and authors emerged from the salons of Paris. In these salons were regular gatherings hosted by prominent aristocratic women. Go ladies! Where women and men could gather together to discuss the issues of the day and swap stories. It was in the 1630s that these aristocratic women started to gather in their own living rooms, and for all you fancy fuckers, salons, sorry mom, in order to discuss the topic of their choice. Arts and letters, politics, or social matters that were of more concern to women of their class. Marriage, love, or lack thereof. Ha! <laughs> I made a rhyme! or controversial subjects like financial and physical independence, and access to education. So this was a time when women were barred from receiving a formal education, unfortunately. However, this isn't going to stop some of these talented female writers from gaining notoriety during this period of salon storytelling. Many of the salon tales written and composed in the 17th century have been preserved in a monumental work called Le Cabinet de Fay, an enormous collection of stories from the 17th and 18th century featuring some of these female writers. Wee-oo, Danger, danger. This is future Hannah here to let you know that there is some bad douchey pseudo-French ahead. Please proceed with caution and try not to hold it against me. Women like Madeleine de Scuderay and Madame de Lafayette. Again, forgive my French. Pourquoi non? L'avenir Hannah dit jamais. C'est impardonable. These women writers, also called saloniers, encouraged independence among one another, and through their storytelling, pushed back against the rigid gender barriers that defined so much of their lives. The saloniers argued particularly for love and intellectual compatibility between the sexes, opposing the system of arranged marriage that was so popular at the time. 
It was sometime in the middle of the 17th century when a passion for the conversational parlor game based on the plots of old folktales swept through the salons. In this game, each salonier was called upon to retell an old tale or rework an old theme, spinning clever new stories that not only showcased verbal agility and imagination, but also commented on the conditions of aristocratic life. Lots of emphasis was placed on a mode of delivery that seemed natural and spontaneous and theatrical. The decorative language of fairy tales served an important function. It disguised the rebellious subtext of the stories and allowed them to slide past court censors. Critiques of court life and, gasp, even the royal family, were embedded in extravagant tales and especially the dystopian and disturbing ones. Not surprisingly, tales by the ladies often featured young, clever, aristocratic girls whose everyday lives were controlled by the whims of fathers, princes, kings, and other generally shitty dudes. As well as tales in which groups of intelligent, independent women disguised as fairies stepped in and put everything to right. Now, by the 19th century, lots of writers are inspired by these salon storytellers, and they start turning fairy tales from their own cultures and nations into written collections that grow in popularity throughout Europe and throughout the end of this century. Some of these influenced writers were the Russian Alexander Afnasiev, the Norwegians Peter Christian Asbjørnsen and Jorgen Moe, Romanian Peter Iparescu, the Englishman Joseph Jacobs, and American author Jeremiah Curtin, who penned a noteworthy collection of Irish fairy tales called... called... well, it was called something. Future Hannah, what was this called? Don't sweat it past me. Here I am again to save the day. Guess the collection was so noteworthy I couldn't even remember the name of it. The book is called Myths and Folktales of Ireland. Back to the show. Now, even though many writers were inspired to transcribe fairy tales, not all of them were necessarily concerned with preserving the historical value of the fairy tales or the format that accompanied them. But not so for everyone. You may recall from earlier in the show that some of the first collectors to attempt to preserve not only the plot and characters of the fairy tale, but also the style in which they were originally told were the Brothers Grimm in their collections of German fairy tales. Somewhat ironically, the Grimm brothers' attention to preservation waned pretty quickly with their rising popularity. This meant that their earlier editions were the most treasured folklorists because the Brothers Grimm ended up rewriting the tales in later editions to make them more acceptable throughout society which ensured their sales, but unfortunately watered down the oral tradition of the tales that they adapted. Hey, edits me again. I just want you to know I'm only kind of sorry for what's about to happen. The works of the Brothers Grimm influenced other collectors of stories, both in Oh my god. Anyway, the works of the Brothers Grimm influenced other collectors of tales. Wait a minute. Edits Hannah here. Computer, enhance. When you explain it, you mean to tell them that I remote it into a computer next to you just to scare you, just because I'm an asshole? That's what I did. I'm sorry, what was that, Jason? But I'm not being honest. <laughs> so.
So uh, that was Jason remotely connecting to the desktop to play that slew of noises and scare the ever-loving shit out of me. Anyway, as I've been trying to say for the last five minutes, the works of the Brothers Grimm influenced other collectors of tales, not only to put these stories together, but to focus on tales of a particular ethnic origin, and also to believe in the spirit of these fairy tales creating a sense of romantic nationalism, asserting that the stories that were told in a particular country were representative of it, and that it was practical to prevent cross-cultural contamination of these stories. Now, if you think that sounds a little Hitlery, you are not wrong, and we will get there. Children's and Household Tales is one such collection of fairy tales, published in December of 1812. This collection is what comes to be known as Grimm's Fairy Tales among English speakers. The first edition contained 86 stories, but by the seventh edition, which was published in 1857, there were over 200 unique fairy tales. In 1825, the Brothers Grimm published their Klein Eisgarb. <laughs> Asgrab. Yeah, whatever. Future Hannah is a complete child. Get out of here, Judgy. Why don't you listen to the show? Or Small Edition, which was a collection of 50 tales designed for child readers. This children's version went through 10 different editions between 1825 and 1858. W.H. Auden once praised the collection during World War II as one of the founding works of Western culture. I don't think there are a lot of you that were not exposed to Grimm's fairy tales as children or who don't currently have a copy of Grimm's fairy tales on their bookshelf. If I look to my right right just now, I will see the edition that I got for my birthday last year. The fairy tales themselves have been put to many uses. Unfortunately, Hitler praised them once as folkish tales showing children what sound racial instincts appeared like. Yeah, see, I told you we'd get to the Hitler stuff. Barf. For instance, Hitler made reference to the Cinderella story and the heroine representing racial purity. Meanwhile, the stepmother represents an immigrant or foreigner, and the prince is representative of the instinct towards seeking a racially pure partner. Double barf. Hitler's praise of the Grimm's works was so strong at this time that the Allied forces warned against exposure to these fairy tales. However, it cannot be said that Hitler's view of these tales was correct. In fact, many writers who have written about the Holocaust have combined these Grimm's fairy tales with their own memoirs, as Jane Yolen has done in her book Briar Rose. Let's not be lulled into thinking that the Brothers Grimm were the only writers to collect fairy tales based on geography or ethnic origin. Getting back to a broader take of fairy tales, ethnographers have collected stories throughout the world, finding similar fairy tales in Africa, the Americas, and Australia with traceable plots and characters that are very similar. Andrew Lang was able to draw on not only the written tales of Europe and Asia, but those collected by ethnographers all over the world to fill his colored fairy book series. Researchers also encouraged other collectors of fairy tales, as when Ye Theodora Ozaki created a collection called Japanese Fairy Tales in 1908, after encouragement from Andrew Lang. Simultaneous to these ethnographic efforts, writers like Hans Christian Andersen and George MacDonald were also continuing the tradition of literary fairy tales. Hans Christian Andersen's work sometimes drew on older folk tales, but most often deployed fairy tale motives and plots into new stories. Meanwhile, MacDonald incorporated fairy tale motives in his new literary fairy tales, like The Light Princess, and in works of the genre that would become fantasy, like in The Princess and the Goblin, or Lilith. And so, despite some efforts, questionable or otherwise, to keep fairy tale collections, quote, culturally pure, unquote, readers will find that in these many collections of fairy tales, you cannot escape the notable similarities in plot, 
character, and progression across these many diverse stories. Literary critics and researchers have originated two theories that have attempted to explain the common elements in fairy tales. The first is that a single point of origin generated any given tale, which then spread over the centuries and across the world. The other theory is that fairy tales stem from a common human experience, and therefore can appear separately in many different places. Likely a blend of both of these theories is most correct. The spread of these tales makes sense. As people repeat stories that they've heard in foreign lands, the oral nature makes it harder and harder to trace the root except by word of mouth. And fairy tales tended to take on the color of their location through the choice of characters, the style in which they were told, and the depiction of the motifs in local color. Getting back to the Brothers Grimm, they, for their part, believe that European fairy tales came from the cultural history shared by all European peoples, and were therefore ancient, far older than written record. In understanding fairy tales, it's important to emphasize that originally adults were the audience of the fairy tale just as often as children. Literary fairy tales were made up of work that was intended for adults, but in the 19th and 20th centuries, the fairy tales started to be associated with children's literature. The French courtiers that we discussed earlier, like Madame Dolnoy, Madame Dolnoy, intended their works for adults, but regarded the source material as tales that servants or other women of lower classes would tell to their children. And you'll recall that the Brothers Grimm titled their seminal fairy tale collection Children's and Household Tales, and in fact they were compelled to rewrite their tales after complaints that they weren't suitable for children. Nowadays, fairy tales have been extensively altered so that they can be enjoyed by children. Gone are the early Brothers Grimm sexual references, like when Rapunzel in the first edition gets knocked up. But in the earlier revisions where sexual content was removed, on the other hand, violence was often emphasized, particularly when punishing villains. Still, though, later revisions cut out violence almost altogether. Additionally, social movements such as the moralizing strain in the Victorian era altered the classical tales to teach lessons like when George Cruikshank rewrote Cinderella in 1854, to contain themes of restraint and sobriety. These edits were often made much to the chagrin of literary critics. For example, Cruikshank's acquaintance Charles Dickens protested these edits, saying, In a utilitarian age of all other times, it is a matter of grave importance that fairy tales should be respected. Scholars of psychology who regarded the cruelty of older fairy tales as indicative of psychological conflicts strongly criticized this editing, saying that it weakened the usefulness of the stories for both adults and children as ways of symbolically resolving issues. In many ways, they were correct. Fairy tales do teach children how to deal with difficult times. Indeed, they still teach adults in some ways. And certain types of censorship do much to diminish the impact and value of fairy tale lessons. Fairy tales show children how to deal with certain social situations and help them find their place in society. Fairy tales can teach kids other important lessons, too. As an example, a psychological study that was published in 2011 tested kids to determine the benefits of fairy tales. Parents of children who took part in the study found that fairy tales triggered children's imagination as they read them. The findings of this study emphasized the crucial role that storytelling plays in children's lives and normal development. So there you go. Read your kids' fairy tales. Where we make the logical leap to exposing your children to horror media or not remains to be seen. Tons of scholars have commented on the importance of fairy tales, especially for kids. In fact, Albert Einstein once said, If you want your children to be intelligent, read them fairy tales. If you want them to be more intelligent, read them more fairy tales. Hannah Selector once said, 
If you want your friends to be badass, show them horror media. And if you want your friends to be even more badass, make sure they check out Undead Airlock. Anyway, in the present day, adaptation of fairy tales for kids continues and shows no sign of slowing or stopping. And with new technology comes new means of fairy tale adaptation. Walt Disney's influential animated film Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Seven Dwarfs, Seven Dwarfs, Seven Dwarfs, jeez, was largely, although certainly not solely, intended for the children's market. Fairy tales are well and truly the foundation of much of kids' culture all over the world. But hey, wait, you say. You told me 20 minutes ago this was a horror podcast. We aren't here to talk about kids' stories. All right, well, you're right. Let's bring it back around. What do fairy tales have to do with the horror genre anyway? Short answer, everything. Long answer, nah, stick with me. First of all, there are plenty of similarities to be found in the structures of both fairy tales and horror stories. A fairy tale acts as an example of someone virtuous overcoming a terrifying enemy, or a tale of someone's vices causing them to be devoured or destroyed in a thematically appropriate way. Many, if not all, varieties of horror stories fall into a similar vein, albeit with nastier creatures, much higher levels of gore, and the potential for a greater level of detail or complexity in the narrative depending on a variety of factors, most especially whether or not that piece of horror media sucks. The parallels between fairy tales and certain fables, and lots of adult horror stories might not seem apparent at first, but it gets pretty obvious when you break down the similar story elements in this way. In both fairy tales and horror stories, both the audience and the characters are introduced to a set of rules. Like, don't leave that path or you'll be eaten by a wolf. Don't feed your mogwai after midnight or it'll turn into a gremlin and you will have serious problems. Sometimes the rules are the same in both genres. Don't go into that witch's hut in the scary abandoned woods. And when the characters in these stories break the rules, the well-established rules, the painfully obvious rules, when they ignore them, they're punished in a fashion. In fairy tales, the punishment often leads to a lesson being learned. But in horror stories, more often than not, the lesson comes too late to benefit the poor characters who end up disemboweled, dismembered, turned into a ghost, or otherwise utterly and totally fucked up. Sorry, Mom. Sorry, horror story characters. In a fairy tale, we know that eating any food offered by an old woman in a ratty cloak is a bad idea, and that your father's new wife is somebody who absolutely cannot be trusted. Just like we know that horror movie characters should never ever split up, and that their cell phones won't work, and that whatever a ghost's influence is doubted by the protagonist, a ghost is a virtual certainty. Both fairy tales and horror stories often demonstrate a belief in absolute evil, and accordingly they punish characters for character flaws, like carelessness, deceit, lust, or pride. Sometimes it's startling what kind of horrors can emerge in fairy tales from simple lapses in morality, concentration, or a little bit of rule-breaking. Authors like Charles Perrault and the Brothers Grimm, their fairy stories, these versions were intended for and as instructive tales for young ladies and gentlemen. And as they were revised throughout the Victorian era and beyond, they acquired even more moralistic elements as the stories were rewritten. Now, there's a huge parallel to be drawn here with horror stories. And even though you often feel like good does not triumph over evil in many horror stories, you have to give the horror genre some credit. It still continues to examine the fundamental elements of loss and death and what might come after it, and how our behavior affects ourselves and those around us. 
One could even say that horror stories are what remain of the unedited fairy tales that we once enjoyed. After all, in an earlier version of Cinderella, the stepsisters cut off parts of their feet to fit in the glass slipper. And later in the story, birds peck out their eyes as revenge for what they've done to poor Cinderella. In some versions of Snow White, the huntsman is ordered to kill the heroine and bring back her heart to prove that she's dead, so that the evil queen can cook it and eat it. And violence isn't restricted to the villains, either. Fairy tales' magical images, scary shadows, and monsters lurking in the woods, the effect is pretty darn close to horror. Hell, sometimes it just plain old is horror. Early fairy tales are unnerving, meticulous in their storytelling, and pretty damn scary. Sometimes it's hard to discern the line between an early fairy tale and a modern horror story. Fairy tales are a short journey through haunted trees to horror stories. Really, horror stories are fairy tales. Unedited, twisted, but not quite warped beyond recognition. Just like we, the horror fans, are those kids who were once enthralled with fairy tales, still enamored and enchanted by a good, creepy-ass tale. And lots of horror creators play the modern Salonier, shedding light on social problems, political issues, and the all-around horrors of just plain being human. So there you go. Fairy tales, scary tales, two sides of the very same oldest time coin. So, what if you're looking to enjoy that delicious creepy bond between fairy tale stories and the horror genre? Well, lucky for us, fairy tales and horror remain inexorably linked, and lots of fabulous authors are delivering in heaps. Here we go with a few recommendations. If you're looking for fabulous, twisted fairy tale reading goodness, then you need look no further than The Merry Spinster. We in the edits would also like to thank the word fabulous for sponsoring this episode, and we'll be using the funds to buy Hannah a goddamn thesaurus. Which is a new book of collected tales by Daniel Ortberg, on whom I have had an absolutely huge crush since The Toast, since text from Jane Eyre. His writing is so clever and so funny and just... <clears throat> anyway. The Merry Spinster is a collection of dark, mischievous stories based on classic fairy tales. It has been adapted from Daniel's much-loved children's stories made horrific, which was a series of stories originally published on The Toast. If you've never read anything by Daniel Ortberg before, first of all, I feel sorry for you. Second of all, you're in for a treat. Now let's take something straight from the back of a book. Unfalteringly faithful to its beloved source material, The Merry Spinster also illuminates the unsuspected and frequently alarming emotional complexities at play in the stories we tell ourselves and each other as we tuck ourselves in for the night. Bedtime will never be the same. Now, one of the best things about the Merry Spinster is that one of the most memorable features of fairy tales, the character tropes, you know, the dutiful wife, the beautiful princess, the noble king, the evil husband, they cease to exist in a gendered space. And the effect of removing this back-of-one's-own-hand familiar feature of fairy tales is really, really fun on the surface and really pretty profound by the end of the reading experience. In turning these gendered roles on their heads, Daniel has rescued every damsel in distress with humor and horror and ingenuity. If you're a horror novel fan, you would also do well to pick up a copy of Unbury Carol by spooky darling Josh Mallerman. Now, if you don't recall from my other episodes, Josh Mallerman is also the author of one of my favorite horror novels, Black Mad Wheel. He's also written Bird Box, Goblin, and lots of other spooky delights. Unbury Carol tells the story of a woman named Carol Evers, and Carol has a crazy secret. 
Carol slips into a sort of coma, a waking slumber that is indistinguishable from death and lasts for days. There are only two people in Carol's life who know about her condition. One, her husband. The other, her lost love, an outlaw named James Moxie. And when she lapses into another coma, her husband plots to steal her fortune by saying that she is really and truly dead and burying her alive. Luckily for Carol, once word of her fate reaches him, Moxie rides the trail again to save Carol from an early and unnatural grave. Why do I mention Unbury Carol? Because its identity as a really messed up take on Sleeping Beauty is impossible to ignore. Unbury Carol is a super fun mix of western and horror and fairy tale, all mashed up. It's a complete turn from Mallerman's previous work, in subject and character, and as usual he demonstrates his talent for diverse and creative work in the horror genre. Sometimes I have to admit it was a little slow, but it is really worth a read and I think you guys will totally love it. And a few other pieces of work, less shiny and recent, but not even a whit less spooky, wonderful, and enchanting. First, Coraline by Neil Gaiman, one of my absolute favorite books of all time. Coraline is the story of a girl who moves to a strange new house and after walking through a mysterious door, finds a home that is similar, but much more fantastic and fun than her own. Her other father and her other mother are not what they seem, nor is the strange house that they occupy, hoping to make Coraline their brand new daughter. You guys might also like Through the Woods, which is a gorgeous graphic novel of fairy tales gone seriously wrong by Emily Carroll. And last but not least, a little hidden gem favorite of mine, which is a collection of stories called There Once Lived a Woman Who Tried to Kill Her Neighbor's Baby. There Once Lived a Woman is a collection of scary fairy tales by Russian author Ludmila Petrushevskaya. It features tales of disappearances and ghosts, twists of fate, mysterious ailments, walking nightmares, and supernatural interventions. This one's unique because when fairy tales are reimagined for a more adult or horror-oriented audience, they tend to flesh out characters more and make them more complex so as to suit the new audience. But with this book, the author has kept the simplicity, the sort of like one-dimensionality of the characters and instead chooses to flesh out the scenarios and the emotions surrounding them more. It's a really interesting flip take. And you know, if reading isn't your thing, believe me when I say that I've got a ton of recommendations to offer in the way of video games, television, horror movies. All you gotta do is ask. I will reward you for the social media engagement. I am absolutely full of it. And by it, I mean the good shit. Okay, end of an episode, so let's do some housekeeping. I am walking back the Facebook idea. Mark Zuckerberg gives me the creeps. I deleted my own Facebook a few years ago. I just don't want to get back into it. But... I did make a website. You can now visit www.undeadairlock.com to check out all sorts of features, including a blog where I will be doing uh, sort of little smaller bursts of horror-related stuff. Um, there's going to be a book club sort of thing where I tell you what I'm reading this month. I might post some one-off ratings of movies that I watch or just general rants about things that I think are great or shitty about horror media today. Kind of whatever I feel like. If you guys have something you want to hear about, you can, of course, let me know. Oh, and the mentioned recommended recaps are probably going to migrate over to that blog because I figure you guys might find it more digestible if it's in that format than as snapshots of notes I keep on my phone and collect on Twitter. Who knows? We're going to try it out. Well, 
As I say goodbye, remember that I want this to be the best podcast that it can possibly be, and I can only do that with your help. Get in touch with me and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach me by email at hannahselector, that's H-A-N-N-A-H-S-E-L-E-C-T-O-R at, and listen up because this has changed, at undeadairlock.com, or as always on Twitter, at hannahselector. You can check out the cast on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Acast, and iTunes. And please, please, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps out the cast if you guys can just go and take a couple minutes to tell me that you don't hate me so that other people can find the cast and join the community of cool, horror-loving folks that we're trying to build here. You guys are experts now. You know all this good stuff. Oh, speaking of building that horror-loving community, you guys will probably start to hear, now at the end of the episode, a few shout-out ads to some of my fellow podcasters. And the very special first-ever ad spot on Undead Airlock goes to good Twitter pal Acadia of the Strangeful Things podcast. Take it away, Acadia. Want to binge on UFOs, ghosts, true crime, and super gross events in world history? Then Strangeful Things is the show for you. We bring you a new story every week and make sure there are as many laughs as there are horrified shudders. Strangeful Things, where we make things you didn't want to know fun to learn. Yay! Strangeful Things is a great show. It's fun, interesting, and Acadia is way better at delivering consistent content than I am. So go give them a listen and give them some love. All of that said, it is time again for our Monster Masher sign-off, a set of lines from a piece of horror media that reveal how you can defeat the evil and get out alive. Remember, if you recognize the lines from this week's sign-off, hit me up on Twitter and let me know you figured it out. Or, if you've got an idea for a Monster Masher, send it to me. God knows that I need ideas at all times. This Monster Masher thing is the hardest part of any cast. I'm not kidding you. Blurg. The next morning, he asked her for the keys, which she gave him, but with such a trembling hand that he easily guessed what had happened. What? Is not the key of my closet among the rest? I must have left it upstairs upon the table. Fail not to bring it to me at once. After several goings backwards and forwards, she was forced to bring him the key. After a moment, having very attentively considered it, he said to his wife, Why is there blood on the key? I do not know! You do not know? I very well know. You went into the closet, did you not? Very well, madam. You shall go back and take your place among the ladies you saw there. Yes, you must die, madam, at once. Since I must die, give me some little time to say my prayers. I give you half a quarter of an hour, but not one moment more. Until next time, everyone.